1: Family caregivers don't have to be alone in their experiences. You will hear from experts and other caregivers facing the same issues that you may be facing. Now, here is your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley.
3: Welcome to our 252nd episode of Family Caregivers Unite. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, your host. Our topic today is Protecting the Family Genetic Heritage. In the past, the family genetic heritage was mostly a matter of the family's history generally and also its medical history. Now, though, our family genetic heritages are compiled into electronic medical records. These hold the promise of major advances in medical care, such as personalised cancer treatments, but they also present challenges. Here's one challenge. In 2012 a news story broke about the finding of the body of England's long-dead King Richard III and how family genetic heritage data was used to link him, 500 years later, to a Canadian citizen. So here is a challenge. What other possibly harmful purposes can be served by family genetic heritage data in electronic form? And here's another challenge. A small store in a small Canadian town specialises in reduction of weight for overweight people. It advertises a service of personal genetic profiling. So here's the challenge. What protection of the customer's family genetic heritage should we expect from the store? All of which is why our topic today, Protecting the Family Genetic Heritage, is so important. Uh, To discuss it, our guests are Man Zawati and Dr. Khaled El-Imam. Man is a lawyer and academic coordinator of the Centre of Genomics and Policy at McGill University. He's an associate member of the Biomedical Ethics Unit at McGill. He's a lecturer at the University of Montreal, having taught Biological Sciences, Law and Civil Liability courses. He's chief tutor for ethical issues in genetics for the graduate studies at McGill University's Faculty of Medicine. He sits on the board of directors of the Canadian Bioethics Association Society not association, I'm sorry, representing Eastern Canada, including Quebec, and is a legal representative on the Research Ethics Committee of the Montreal General Hospital. Khaled is the founder and CEO of Privacy Analytics Incorporated. He's an associate professor at the University of Ottawa's Faculty of Medicine, a senior investigator at the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario Research Institute, and he holds a Canada Research Chair in Electronic Health Information at the University of Ottawa. Previously, he was a senior research officer at the National Research Council of Canada, Um, And prior to that, he headed the Quantitative Methods Group at Germany's Fraunhofer Institute. In 2003 and 2004, he was ranked as the top systems and software engineering scholar worldwide by the Journal of Systems and Software, and he ranked second in 2002 and 2005. So, welcome to the show, man and Khaled.
4: Thank you for having
3: me. Thank you. Right. Now, Man, let's start with you. Please tell, them, tell us more about your life and your career and any experience you have with family caregiving.
4: Man? Um I I personally uh um do not have any direct experience with, with family care viewing per se, but um to be honest, a lot of what I do and what the Center of Genomics and Policy does is is not only geared towards um policy makers or professionals or, you know, uh um researchers, it's also geared towards the public. Uh and we hope that uh, a lot of what we do um gets some, some uptake from family care uh, givers. Um, Let give me give you an example. A lot of what we do here at the Center of Genomics and Policy has to do with ethical and legal issues in, in human genetics. Um, and, uh, you know, other than the usual and normal um, ethical issues around consent or privacy, um, there is a, a part of all of this that is quickly emerging, which is the public perception. Um, so a lot of our projects actually do include qualitative analysis, where we have uh, discussions with uh, members of the public or um, f- you know family members who have um, a member who is who has a disease, and we want to hear from them as it informs uh, policy making
3: right, Colin, please tell us more about your life career and your experience, if any, with family caregiving Colin.
5: Yes. So um, my my work has mostly focused on uh, facilitating the sharing of health information for secondary purposes. So this includes things like uh, sharing data for research, sharing data for for public health. Um, I, I don't have direct experience with family caregiving, but um, as you mentioned in the introduction, um, I'm based at the Children's Hospital, so uh, we we do interact a lot with with families who are. Um, uh, have kids who who are patients at the hospital um and uh, the uh, uh the specific area that um I've been I've been uh, involved in um is uh allowing the the sharing of this health information and dealing with all the privacy issues um around that um so uh, there are many reasons to deal with these privacy issues um one of them, the obvious one of course is that it's it's the law um that uh, uh sharing health information um There are a number of laws around that and regulations in in multiple jurisdictions in Canada and the U.S. Um, They have to be compliant with the law, but there are also again, you know, public trust issues, um, and um, and perhaps we'll talk a little bit about that later on. Um, We have to be very careful when you're sharing data, even if if it's for the common good, if it's going to help with with research and with public health. uh, There are still good reasons to uh, want to deal with the privacy issues around that. So we work a lot around uh, coming up with methods and tools and technologies and bringing them into practice as well. So you mentioned the company, and uh, the work we do um, takes um, research from the very beginning from, from, a, from a kind of a basic question all the way to something that can be uh, uh, disseminated broadly um, by developing methodologies and tools that, that uh, can be uh, um, commercialized, um, which, which allows these results to be uh, broadly disseminated and, and transitioned into practice.
3: Carla, thank you for that. I'm going to ask you a bit more about the work you're doing at the um, Privacy Analytics, but let's go back now to to Man. Please tell us more about your work with the Centre of Genomics and Policy. Man?
4: Yes, absolutely. So, I mean, I'm a lawyer and uh, the academic coordinator of the centre. Other than my teaching and and consultation responsibilities, uh, my research really focuses on um, ethical and legal issues in... um, Two domains so the first one is biobanking more specifically so um, a lot of my work has to do with um, you know uh, helping or or ongoing consultation with uh, various biobanks uh, and one of them Here in Canada, the Canadian Partnership um, for Tomorrow project, which involves five different biobanks, from British Columbia to the Atlantic provinces, and we deal with a number of emerging issues. Um, uh, You know, we've been working on the theoretical aspects of things for a very long time, and now what we're seeing is the importance of actually putting it into concrete work, so uh, other than, you know, creating generic consent forms um, and, and working on, on the various policies with regards to confidentiality and intellectual property, um, we're very much focused now on access. Uh, to data and samples, and I think, as as Khalid was just mentioning, um, you know, it's not a it's not an easy thing. It requires a number of different governance um, uh, properties and governance system uh, to make sure that uh, whoever accesses data and samples from participants in research uh, does that in an orderly fashion that protects the uh, participant, but at the same time. That allows uh, data to be um, uh, sent out as, as quickly as possible so that, it, you know, there would be some uptake in the scientific community. So there's a, a balancing act that needs to be made, obviously, but always thinking of protecting the participant in, in, in any of these acts. So that's one area. The other area, which I'm also very interested in, um, has to do with um, a professional obligation. So uh, most specifically clinician researchers' obligation. Uh, and and uh, um, the area which is more and more interesting, at least from from my point of view, is um, uh, the integration of new technology into the clinic. So um, a number of different technologies have been used in research projects. Uh, uh, you know where we tried uh, um, you know to understand its efficacy and efficiency, and, and the various medical devices now are. Are either you know open regulated and used in the clinic, uh, and therefore we need to understand uh, the professional obligations in using these and um, which has many um, interesting aspects to it, one of them is making sure that it, they're used you know, in an in ethical and, and, and fashion, whatever comes out of them, and it, specifically if it has to do with data, is disseminated in the proper fashion. But also it is um, uh, helping out more in the um, ethical conduct of of clinical care. Um, I'm
3: going to stop you there, Man, only because I want to get colored in on the particular point. Um, I want Colin first you to tell us more uh, about your work with privacy analytics, and particularly this the question of uh, how far you go into questions of ethics and things like that Colin? Uh,
5: yes, so um. Well, let me start um, a little bit from from the the beginning. Um, so, um, as we're seeing more digitization of health information, electronic medical records and electronic health records, um, there is a, there are great opportunities to to uh, use that uh, data uh, for for these secondary purposes. Um, but also um, there is so we're seeing a lot of that demand. Um, but also this data can be integrated with other data sets. So you're starting to see a clinic data set being integrated with uh, uh, social data or education data. Um, so, um, creating these integrated or linked data sets uh, cr- creates additional um, uh, privacy concerns. Um, so, what we have done uh, at, at Privacy and Analytics, which is really a spinoff from the hospital, um, was to develop uh, technology that um, allows the that the, those. Individual data sets or linked data sets to be anonymized, so they can be um, shared um, for for the secondary purpose. So, essentially, deal with the privacy issues. And anonymization means you can't know the the identity of the of the patients. So um, you can uh, share the data, and then the, the the chance or the likelihood of determining the identity of the patients in that shared data is is uh, uh, very small. Um, and from a consent pers- perspective, uh, so the the laws and regulations in, in multiple jurisdictions allow you to share health information that has been anonymized without obtaining uh, consent. Um, and, and there are a number of reasons why you'd want to do this for, for there are practical reasons. There's, there's, there are also other uh, um, kind of technical reasons around the quality of the data. But essentially, uh, anonymization, when you share data for secondary purposes, you can either anonymize the data or you can go back and obtain consent from the uh, individual. So we facilitate the, the second
3: option. Right. Now I'm going to stop you there because uh, we are operating under the tyranny of time and the time dictates that we take a break now. So we'll do that now and then we'll come back to these, this evolving and uh, extraordinarily interesting topic. So this is Dr. Gordon Anthony and my guest, Aman Sawati and Dr. Khaled El You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment channels and CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio. Please stay with us. We will be back.
2: Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com There are over 140 million products manufactured worldwide. It is impossible to know the ingredients in these products, especially those made overseas. Stan Salat, Jr., President and CEO of the HSF Mark and the Counterfeit Mark Alliance, is the host of People to People, working together for your safety. Stan believes in our right to know the type and amount of hazardous materials in consumer products and whether they are counterfeit. Find out how you can protect yourself Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com.
1: You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg.com at FamilyCaregiversUnite.org. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite.
3: Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite. and am Man Zawati and Dr. Khaled el Our topic is protecting the family genetic heritage. Now, let's talk about the challenges that arise in protecting the genetic heritage of families. Man, with you first, what are the greatest challenges that arise for the legal system in protecting the genetic heritage of families? Man?
4: Sure. Uh, well, you know, Gordon, the, the legal system can, can only do so much. Um, I mean, And there are a number of different challenges that, that the legal system is facing, but I, I probably will concentrate on two main challenges. I, I think the first one has to do with, with the process. Um, you know, having to change the law or to um, to to modify specific sections is not a really easy thing, um, and and could sometimes fall victim to political, political tensions in the parliament. Um, so uh, sometimes we fall into into discussions around, um, you know, updating a, a current law or, or making a new technology uh, more present or reflected in, in various regulations, um, which which could go really quickly, but could sometimes also fall. Um, victim to, to political tensions, whether um, you know it's, it's, it goes through a longer debate, and, and sometimes science goes quicker than than, than the uptake that, that law has. So I, I would see this as the first challenge. The, the second challenge is. Um, a lot of the new technology that uh, that we're seeing today, especially in the field of of genetics and genomics are are new i mean obviously some of them have been there for a very long time um, but but uh, a lot of them are new and uh, one way for us in the legal system other than laws is is to look at the jurisprudence, look at the various decisions that that have um, had cases that that involve uh, such new technology or or these issues because uh, you know uh, other than the law another primary source of the law is, is the jurisprudence, and, and given the fact that these are new, we don't actually see a lot of um, uh, of novelty in, in the jurisprudence. I mean, thinking you just more, you know, specifically to Canada, um, the latest uh, uh, that we have that really went into details about genetics was the Waters versus White case, uh, and that was a case um, where the facts went back to the 1970s, imagine. So, um, and that's a a very, very, you know, recent case uh, that came out from the Court of Appeal of Quebec in 2012. Um, So it just gives you a good idea of, of, you know, the various challenges that we're facing.
3: Complex area. Cullen, what are the greatest challenges that arise for, excuse me, electronic record systems when the idea is that they protect the genetic heritage of families by ensuring that the genetic information is accessible only where it should be accessible. Khaled? Uh,
5: yes. So uh, when you're talking about um, electronic um, medical records, or one when one is talking about these, um, there are really two, two perspectives that can be taken. Um, so uh, let, let's consider a, a clinic. Um, so right right now, um, you know, genomic genetic data is not collected as a, as a routine uh, part of uh, practice, so standard of care or standard practice. So uh i think we 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 have time to to uh, uh think this uh, through and until um this kind of data is collected on a regular basis as kind of the, the as part of the clinical process um but in general uh when when data is uh, stored in electronic medical records uh, there are processes uh to to manage um that uh, information um so normally uh, only the the circle of care uh, would have access to uh, to that data. And the circle of care would be defined as the physician who's taking care of the patient and then the other um, health care providers or members of the team that are involved in the patient's uh, care. Um, and these types of practices are generally well-defined. I mean, there are examples of, of, of uh, uh, breaches and there are examples of, of uh, um, um, providers, uh, you know, uh, snooping on people on, so they know and looking records, but by and large, uh, there, are, there are systems in place to catch these things, and this doesn't happen very, very frequently. Um, so, so, when it's part of the electronic medical record, and we're talking about the provision of care, there are generally good systems in place to manage that kind of information. Um, so the second perspective is when the data is used for other purposes that are not related to care. So when that information is uh, uh, shared for um, researchers, we, we see people posting it online and creating open data sets with their genetic data made available for for general use or contribute to, to um, uh, repositories. And also you have examples uh, where um, providers um, retain uh, tissue or sample taken during the provision of care and automatically uh, include that into a a biorepository. So this is where things get a little bit more uh, complicated, Um, and uh, there there are a number of things there. One is around consent. Most of the time when data is included in biorepositories, there's some kind of consent uh, or or notice where the patients are informed that this is happening. but uh, generally, the, the patients are not informed of all the uses uh, of their data and all the people who may have access to to their data. Um, so I think this is where things uh, need to be considered more carefully.
3: Very helpful. Man, what are the greatest challenges of an ethical nature that arise Obviously, in the legal context, but in other contexts as well, um, when we 're talking about protecting the genetic heritage of families, the ethical questions, in other words huh?
4: well, I mean as you mentioned uh, I think we, we can't really differentiate in terms of the debate with, with the legal issues um, because they they do fall you know within i mean the legal has you know this usually concerned with norms and and, and various regulations. Um, Ethics is, you know, I think in our discussion, it really focuses on the various principles that we have to keep in mind, but usually they're pretty much reflected in, in, in whatever law is out there. Um, I think in terms of, of, uh, I I would say that there there are challenges, not necessarily with with ethics in itself, but I think with what we call ethical norms, so, uh, you know, policies and and opinions and statements that come out from uh, various uh, associations or or bodies, Um, and again, there are two main issues here. Uh, The first one is, uh, you know, while these these, um, ethics norms, uh, that Obviously, include ethics principles are could perhaps be more flexible in terms of changing and modifying them. Um, many of them are not binding, so they 're really out there uh, to provide opinion statements and and be used um, but but their their use is quite discretionary so that, that that aspect of it could could be seen as a challenge. Uh, the other aspect as well is. You know genetics does not only include i mean again we 're specifically talking about genetics here it does not only include um, uh, you know professionals um, you know there are, uh, there are various stakeholders that are also at hand here and and sometimes um, it is a challenge in in these documents to include. The view of all the various stakeholders, or at least when there are uh, uh, recommendations that are brought uh, to the fore, that they take into consideration not only the professional side but also members of the public um, and 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 you know the patients as well or the or the participants of the research project. So that's another uh, uh, a challenge that we are seeing at this point.
3: Right now, Colin, we're still on the topic of challenges, and I, I'm interested in hearing about the challenges that arise when record systems of the type that you're talking about may be subject to security threats. And what I mean by that, security threats, are where um, data is in s- somewhere... In the system, and somebody who has absolutely no right to access that data gets it in some way and maybe uses it for abusive purposes. So, what are the challenges relating to security threats? Colin? Uh,
5: so, the normally I mean, for clinical or administrative or, or, or you know, survey data, um, when you are storing uh, uh, th- this kind of information um, and uh, you, uh, you don't need it to provide care, then you would uh, anonymize that data. Um, so that would be the normal practice. However, with, with genetic data, um, it's very difficult to anonymize. Uh, even if you wanted to. And there have been a number of studies showing how difficult that is, that short sequences can um, are unique for individuals that uh, using publicly available data. Um, some percentage of individuals' surnames can be uh, uh, reverse-engineered. Um, so, so there have been a number of, of uh, what are called re-identification attacks on, on sequence data, on genomic data, where individuals can potentially be re-identified uh, from that. Um, these are really hard to do. Uh, they require quite a bit of skill, um, and uh, they, there are a number of other conditions that have to be true for these um, types of attacks to be to be successful. Um, but arguably, uh, these these uh, uh, conditions are going to become easier to meet over time. Um, so, so I think that's the real challenge right now. Uh, there, are, in, in the immediate uh, future, um, this data therefore has to be uh, protected. Uh, very, very carefully to ensure that only legitimate uh, users have access to it, and to minimise the the chances of a breach. So this means, for example, it's probably um, uh, a bit too risky to post this kind of data freely online at this point in time. Uh, you'd want to have uh, various types of access controls on on, on this data and uh, limit it to to individuals that have been uh, screened that have signed various agreements on how they're going to use that information, that they agree not to attempt to re-identify the individuals and just use the information for whatever the intended purpose is. Um, longer term, there is some really interesting um, technologies that are being developed to allow the sharing of of genomic sequences. Uh, I would say this this technology is probably two or three, maybe even five years um uh, down the road, where, where it will be uh, ready for for uh, broader broader use. But uh, these kinds of secu- it's called secure computation. But these kinds of techniques, um, secure computation techniques, uh, can allow the broad sharing of uh, sequence data and still provide very strong protection um, for the uh, for the individuals.
3: So, in other words, there's a there's a future uh, of development ahead to deal with these broad things that I've referred to as security threats um, and that's something that I think at a later date we might want to discuss some more but unfortunately we have to take the short break now um, so we'll do that This is Dr. Gordon Adley and my guests Arman Zawati and Dr. Khaled el You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels and CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio Please stay with us, we will be back
2: Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com.
1: Each week, Jimmy Gould brings you the stories and the people that you want to hear about.
2: American Heroes Network is a program for and about our American veteran heroes and their families. Join Gary Ray with his co-host Linda Crater and other prestigious co-hosts as they show what is being done to help our veterans and showcase the companies and organizations that are helping our veterans and their families rebuild their lives. Listen for American Heroes Network, live and powered by the Voice America Variety Channel, every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time. How do you know if you're living with an addict? If you think you know all the recognizable signs, you probably don't. If you're listening to and reading from the so-called experts, you probably don't. You need to hear from a parent, just like yourself, who has been there and can tell you what it's like firsthand. Please listen to Afflicted by Addiction with Bradley DeHaven. Our program is heard every Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. It just might save your life or the life of someone you love. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You
1: are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at org. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite.
3: Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite, and Zawati and Dr. Khaled El Imam. Our topic is protecting the family genetic heritage. Let's talk about overcoming the challenges that you've been talking about in the previous segment that arise in protecting the genetic heritage of families. Man, what are the ways in which the legal res- system is responding to the greatest challenges that you mentioned in protecting these genetic heritages? Please please give us a sense of how the legal system is actually responding man
4: yes um, well obviously there are two two ways so there's there's a more of a let's say a response which is reactive, and there 's the uh, actual laws that already exist that could be seen as very prospective in nature and that include any new uh, novelty or, or emerging issues that arise. I mean, if we look at Canada, for example there's a number of protection for 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 individuals uh, I mean we can start with the very, very high, which is the constitutional protection for discrimination uh, and and go you know to to privacy laws uh, within the federal system. so the personal information protection and electronic documents Act in Canada, which um, is also uh, a named pipeda um, that that also does provide a number of, of various um, uh, you know sort of protections for the for the for the for the patients and 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 for individuals. Um, you also have in in various provinces uh, a number of, of regulations or acts, as we call them, um, you know, so that these are legislation that that do provide um, uh, you know some form of protection um, to 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 the different individuals, and it could be very specific to the health context and. Can also be very general in scope. So, for example, the Civil Code of Quebec is very general in scope, and it does have a number of sections uh, that discuss, you know, confidentiality and the confidentiality of, 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 um, uh, you know, medical information or information per se um, that that is put in a file by a third person. Uh, but you also have examples within the various provinces, like, for example, Ontario has a Personal Health Information Protection Act, uh, Alberta has a Health Information Act, and uh, Nova Scotia has a Freedom of Information Protection of Privacy Act. So there are a number of uh, various acts that are out there. The other thing that we're also seeing as well, um, especially with, you know, new emerging issues, is um, the various code of conduct, or at least the ontological codes, uh, that um, exist for professionals as well. So, you know, not only from a, a public perspective or from a, a very specific uh, uh, patient or health-related perspective, but also from the professional uh, perspective as well. And, um, uh, you know, when when you have new uh, technologies coming into the fore, um, that also contain a number of various um, ethical and legal issues with regards to the information that they contain. And, and, you know, whether we have a lot of questions about the dissemination of this information, a number of right. professional bodies do actually, um, uh, um, you know, create their own statements or their own uh, what we call standard of care.
3: Right, Khalid, it's the same. It's the same question in parallel with the one that I asked Man, and that is, how is the information technology sector responding? Um, when the question of protection is to make sure that the genetic information is accessed or accessible only where it should be accessed or accessible, what ways is your sector responding, Khaled?
5: Well, I mean, before uh, discussing with the with the sector. Um, um, the response of the sector i i think there there are a couple of things that need to be mentioned about how this data should be uh um, protected in general and i think the the first thing is that individuals have to be careful about um how uh they share their their uh, genetic information so um if they uh um, if they get get tested or or have have uh um any of their uh, uh um, uh, samples uh, uh, sequenced, um, then um, and there are, there are companies that provide these kinds of services for consumers now, and, and the expectation is because of the, the decreasing cost, this will become easier uh, to do from a consumer perspective. Um, one should be very careful with sharing uh, that information. Uh, it is it is health information. It it contains uh, potentially a lot of uh, very sensitive information, um, and uh, you, you don't want to have that uh, floating around. So so that's the first thing individuals have have to be aware of this. Um, the other thing, the second thing to note is that uh, the, there, there are uh, um, strong uh, regulations uh, in, in the U.S. and, and in Canada around um, the, the uh, management of, of health information in general. Uh, and enforcement is increasing quite a bit. It's certainly increasing um, in the U.S. quite a bit um, where um, audits are being conducted and, and organizations that are found not to be managing health information in a responsible manner. Um, are um, are being fined, so that there are penalties. Um, and then the other thing also which applies um, in, in Canada and, and the U.S. is that um, there are um, breach notification laws. So if there is a data breach, and genetic information would, would fall into that category um, uh as, as, as personal health information, uh, so basically involving personal health information, um, the the consequences are quite high. The cost to the organisation, whether it's a healthcare provider, a hospital, a clinic, or or a research lab, um, the cost can be quite staggering. The estimate is around $200 per affected individual. So, if you uh, lose a thousand, records on a thousand individuals, then you're t- talking about um, you $200,000 in cost, uh, redress, compensation, penalties. Uh, Litigation costs, etc. So there's a strong incentive for organizations to to uh, follow best practices um, and uh, uh, protect uh, health, personal health information. Of course, they don't all do it, but there's strong incentives to do it, and enforcement increase, increase is increasing. So that's reassuring. From a uh, technology perspective, what's what's happening now is a little bit of kind of both ends. Um, know push and pull, so you have organizations that are holding large um, uh, repositories of, of uh, genomic data that are pulling it in so instead of making them more broadly available they 're pulling it in and adding more access controls to limit. Uh, or to have more control over over who has access to that information. At the same time, you see these very large repositories being created to facilitate the pooling and sharing of of uh, more data for the purposes of research um, and. Um, you know correlating uh, um, um, genomic data with with various uh, um, diseases and conditions, um, and the objective of creating these large repositories is to facilitate greater access to to this data um, by by researchers. So you have these two threads happening at the same time: the pulling in and the creating of larger uh, repositories that that are intended to be shared uh, as, as broadly as possible um, and, I um,
3: Khaled, Khaled, I'm going to stop you there only because of the tyranny of time once more, but it gets me, gives me the lead to my question to Man. What are the ways in which um, public policy or government policy, whatever you choose to call it, is responding to this pull and push that Khaled's talking about, um, mm-hmm. making sure that, in fact, public policy, government policy is Ethical in the way that it seeks to protect people,
4: man. Yes, I mean uh, well, one one thing that is interesting, you know, especially with that, is that it it, it has a, a the same purpose as as the different you know regulations, but it's it's done in a different way. Um, it, it tends also sometimes to be very practical in nature, um, and and you know the different examples of of current you know policy or public policy that is out there um, uh, involve, for example, training. Uh, so that's a very major uh, important issue that we're facing today. Um, and, you know, we've, we haven't perhaps mentioned today the direct-to-consumer genetic testing um, uh, situation I mean but now a lot of people are able to go online um, you know to to the various companies they, they receive uh, you know a toolkit where they they send in some samples and um, it gets analyzed and that information is uh, provided to them online obviously there are some some confidentiality mechanisms but still I mean it's it's viewable online and and the people tend to get that and and sometimes don't know what to do with it. Uh, uh, there are some some places where they they provide them with with counseling but in other places they don't and a lot of that is is taken on in the in the clinical care setting and in our health care system uh, where a number of these individuals go and and meet with professionals but uh, there isn't enough training um, uh, at, at least the primary care setting so that's right. one area where there's a lot of work that's been done on it the other area as well is is um, looking into public perception. Um, there, there is you know, a new technology that is out there, there are various research projects, or there are um, obviously a lot of issues, that, that but, but we tend to look into um, um, you know, specific perspe- perspectives. Um, uh, sometimes the public perception is not really taken care or, or being considered, so that's another area where we're seeing a lot of uptake on it. And finally as well, um, professional bodies are also publishing. Um, uh, various reports. I mean, the, recently the American uh, College of Medical Genetics published a report on incidental findings uh, with whole genome and and whole exome sequencing, and and it's interesting because their their goal was to um, you know make things a bit perhaps clearer for their professionals and 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 create some form of um, you know standard. But uh, you know a lot of controversy came out of it. But at least th- there was this. Uh, um, um, you know, the, 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 there was this septic, so they're they're working on it. So professional bodies as well are are, are working on it well in terms of public policy.
3: Right, Khalid. Uh, to you, I want to ask you again a bit more about the security threats. That is, is it realistic to see a danger or a threat that people with malice or crime um, in their motivation can break into these systems and? whatever it is, steal the genetic information of people who are vulnerable and, say, blackmail them or something of that nature. Is that a realistic risk, Khaled?
5: Well, we we do not have examples of uh, that particular scenario. Um, However, there are examples of uh, attacks on on, on other kinds of of health data. Um, So there are examples of extortion attempts where large databases are are essentially uh, hacked and uh, the, the, the hacker would ask for the, the data custodian for money in order not to reveal the data or they will encrypt the whole database and um, ask for a ransom in order to provide the key to, to decrypt that database. So that we know that has happened. Uh, there's also insurance fraud um, where uh, information about patients is used to, to uh, make insurance claims in their name and collect the money. So we know those things uh, also uh, happen. In general, though, uh, from, a, from at least from what we know, the the, um, the cost of a single record is quite small. The value of a single record is quite small. It's you know maybe a few dollars um, to to someone who has malicious intent. So the the um, attacking a single record um, is, is is not worth it it's it's much more worth it to 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 go after a very large database uh where the 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 value of that data um, again in, in a, from a malicious perspective uh the value of that data would be would be much higher um so uh it's unless of course you you're you're targeting a famous person or a politician um but again, to, to, uh, if you're talking about genetic data in order to use that, at least today, you require a certain amount of skill and sophistication in order to, to use that data to start drawing conclusions about, uh, the, the, the health status, uh, status of, of individuals. Um, but we don't know of any specific examples of that happening where genetic information of individuals uh, is, is, is used to, to t- target them for blackmail. Uh, what we do know is you know, the larger databases of clinical, general clinical information are, are being hacked and used for ransom and blackmail, et cetera. So I, um, I don't think the problem is there yet. It may get there, but we have a different kind of problem that exists today.
3: Okay, thanks very much. Carlos. that's a very helpful um, very helpful distinction you've just drawn now once again it's time for the break this is Dr. Gordon Averley and my guests Aman Sawati and Dr. Khaled el you're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment channels and CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio please stay with us we will be back
2: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com.
1: You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg.com at FamilyCaregiversUnite.org. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite.
3: Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite. I'm Man Zawati and Dr. Khaled el Our topic is protecting the family genetic heritage. So let's talk about the things you would like to do through your work and see done to accelerate progress in overcoming the challenges that you've been talking about. So, Man, first of all, what more would you like to do and see done to promote efforts in the legal system? Man?
4: Yeah, I mean, as I mentioned, uh, um, Gordon, I mean, the law, the legal system can do uh, so much. Uh, but, I mean, uh, obviously, I think it's more in terms of um, making sure that. Um, You know, the various practices that are out there are not necessarily framed per se, but but we make sure that there are uh, enough tools for individuals to be protected. Um, and, and, you know, the, the other thing I think that, that is uh, of importance is, uh, you know, in law or in policymaking, one thing we want to make sure it's done is that when there's something that is out there that it's not reactive in nature, uh, but it's pretty much prospective in nature. And reactive uh, policymaking or, or legislation uh, can can end up sometimes um, um, creating some hurdles to, to, to you know, uh, novel technologies or, or emerging technology or, or, emerging, or emerging processes But uh, prospective uh, policy making are usually, um, you know, make sure that that all the different stakeholders' uh, interests are taking into consideration. So that's another aspect. Um, Also, in 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 the legal system, or at least. through the various uh, public bodies that that uh, are there to promote and uphold the legal system, um, I think there's there's a there's a need for more um, uh, in of you know better training for professionals, um, as well as uh, making sure that the public gets access to information around these various um, uh, issues and topics. I mean, a lot of different ministries do have that, uh, uh, but it sometimes it, it it requires a little bit more details and. And making sure that everyone does have access to this,
3: right, Colin? What more would you like to do through your work and to see done to promote efforts in the information technology sector, Colin?
5: Yes. So, uh, well, first of all, I mean, I'm a, I'm a strong believer in, in, in uh, data sharing. That that great benefits can come from making data available. Um, um, uh, whether whether we 're talking about research or public health or, or even some, some commercial uh, uh, purposes i 'm um, also a technologist uh, by training, so I, I have a strong belief that the solution is in the technology um, and, that the, and there are good technical solutions that are that are being worked on now that can help facilitate the sharing of this information in a way that is protective of the the privacy of uh, individuals. I, I will say that this, the the ultimate solution will not only be technology there are some governance mechanisms. That mechanisms that need to be put in place and various other controls that would need to be put in place. But uh, technology can play a very important uh, role. And I'll, I'll just um, uh, give you a, a simple example of uh, how this may be achieved. And this this is a real example. So we had a, a situation where... Um, there was a need to, to conduct a public health surveillance uh, project across the province of Ontario um, uh, to collect infection data from uh, long-term care homes across the province, and there was a reluctance to share uh, this kind of information for privacy reasons, so we used this idea of secure computation to do a large-scale public health surveillance where the, the data was collected from the homes in a secure way, encrypted manner, and and uh, surveillance was done, infection rates were, were computed, etc., without revealing any personal information about any of the individuals who are affected. Um, so uh, it, is, it is possible to use some of these modern techniques, secure computation to implement uh, uh, large-scale data collection and large-scale analytics or data analysis um, and uh, address some of the concerns or some of the issues that we we have been talking about. But these mostly apply to uh, again uh, secondary purposes. Um, when you're when you're treating a patient, um, the the me- mechanisms that exist today are good if they're followed because you need to know who the patient is. You need to know their name, their identity. You need to make sure that the record you're looking at belongs to the patient in front of you. So in that case, you identifiable information is necessary, and the techniques that we have today, if implemented properly, uh, will provide um, and the techniques and the methods and uh, training of healthcare providers, et cetera, about how to handle health information. If you do all these things today, you're going to protect the data well for providing care. But if you want to share data broadly, uh, especially uh, uh, genetic data, then, then some of these new techniques, uh, I think, are, are going to provide the solution.
3: Very good. Now, Man, what's your message for families who are concerned about abuse of their genetic heritages? Man, that's your message. Uh, two,
4: two words really. Uh, be informed. I, I think that's that's what's really uh, important here. I mean, obviously there are, there are a number of various um, resources that are out there that you know people can go on and and read and 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 sometimes you can hear testimonies and, um, you know, be informed, but also be informed in the practical sense of things. I mean, when someone goes into a clinical care setting and, um, you know, undergoes a specific um, procedure or or is, you know, is asked to undergo specific testing, um, they need to be informed. I mean, the, the, obviously there is a duty um, to inform from, from professionals, but that doesn't stop, uh, um, you know, families and 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 uh, you know, families of concerned uh, or concerned families to to actually ask the you know right questions and and get the information that they need when it comes to uh, their family member uh, being tested. And and the same thing when it comes to research, you know, a number of various uh, um, you know participants are not necessarily able to consent for themselves, and and there are. Usually, legal representatives, or if it's a you know if it's a child, uh, the you know the, the, the individual who has the parental authority consents for the child. But it, it does require them to ask the proper question. I mean, the consent form is there; it's often detailed, but there are things that are not necessarily clear. Uh, right. When it comes Man, to- I,
3: I'm sorry, I have to stop you, but we're running into time problems, and I want to hear Colin's message for families who are concerned about abuse, possible abuse of their genetic heritage. Colin. Call it, please.
5: Oh, well, I'd like to reinforce some of the same points. I mean, ask uh, ask questions, but also I think uh, it's important to set expectations by uh, uh, on the on the um, providers and uh, researchers who are who are uh, you giving data to or giving uh, your information to that uh, you expect them to uh, manage that data in a responsible way um, and to follow uh, best practices. So ask uh, ask questions um, about how the data is going to be uh, um, used, how it's going to be shared, um, and uh, set expectations that this, this is really an important uh, issue for, for you and uh, that um, you, you expect the, the uh, uh, data recipients who are handling your data to, to follow best practices, and there are many best practices around
3: right now I'm going to summarize because unfortunately we have to close very shortly I'm going to summarize back to you I think two things come to me expectations of what's expected of professionals and others handling this data and also education for everyone involved including patients and families just what is the right approach to an important development that brings considerable benefits but also as I've said before does bring challenges and so I want to thank you both very very much for this extremely helpful uh, analysis and I want to wish you both for everybody's sake every success in your work because what you're doing is important i want to say thank you to our listeners we'd like to hear your comments on this episode and from our listeners i'd like to hear about ideas for topics or if you're interested in being a guest on the show our next episode will be for family caregivers friendship forgiveness and finding themselves please join us same time same spot on the internet talk to you then